Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Tonight, we welcome you to Bite Into It with Laura Summers. Hey, hey, Vanessa. Hey there, and Joe Eaton. Good evening. Excellent to have you in studio with us. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Tonight, we will delve into research by Monash's School of Media, Film and Journalism into how advertising is targeted at users. It's all a lot more complicated and um, perhaps uh, unpleasant than you might even suspect. So we'll get to that in our first segment this evening. Before we get there, in the news of the week, um, found a very interesting study on internet freedom. It did get broad coverage with The Guardian um, talking about it, but a Washington uh, DC-based democracy advocacy group has been looking at how a lack of regulation in the US technology industry and the rise of authoritarian agencies um, around the world have been contributing to um, a decline in internet freedom. This is no surprise to anyone who's been following things like Human Rights Watch and um, a whole range of local chapters looking into internet freedoms, human rights as it crosses over the technology space. Uh, But it's really still quite constructive to see more and more agitating and um, real facts-based reporting on the different ways that lack of regulations are causing um, measurable harm to uh, not just consumers but citizens and um, to democracies. Lisa, uh, sorry, Laura, did you did you get to have a look at any of this? Yeah, look, I think the thing it pointed out in the piece that really like resonated with what I've been observing is um, this, they quote, a growing lack of diversity amongst sources of online information and the fact that so many of these conspiracy theories and misinformation pieces are actually traced back to a surprisingly small number of um, propagators of misinformation. And I think that's the the sort of lack of visibility of that and the the, the sort of um, lack of a robust and, and flourishing ecosystem of journalistic sources is actually like one that we probably talk about a lot here, but is um, really important to re- re- return to and remember that that's like, that is like one of the major issues that we're currently experiencing that like, even though the internet feels incredibly large and incredibly filled with voices, actually, um, I think I saw a piece on anti-vax um, misinformation that was saying that out of many um, hundreds of thousands of posts, they were able to trace the sources back to 12 posters. Um, and I, when I think when you hear stats like that, you realize like how significant this issue is and how much it's impacting like the kind of what you might think of as the resilience of our information ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really the fact that there are real misinformation factories out there and uh, they're incredibly good at what they're doing. Uh, yeah, and they're they're essentially flourishing unchecked. Definitely. Mm. What else is happening in the news this week, Laura? Well, continuing of flourishing unchecked, there was actually, um, I mean, this is sort of the, the flip side of the same kind of story, but there was a... Um, Pretty significant hack um, that happened a couple of days ago, um, and it's it's it was focusing on an internet company called Epic, um, which is called uh, spelled E P I K, um, and it's it's sort of a well known bastion of libertarianism and uh, like you know free speech rights. But then as a result of 
those values. It has been well known for hosting um, websites and forums and places that most other servers find uh, unacceptable and would, would not like want to platform. Um, so yes, they, they were the target of a hack and there's been a whole bunch of leaks happening on Twitter. If you have a look at the hashtag epic fail, you'll see a whole bunch of information coming out about the, the actual internet service as well as all of this data that they were able to, um, to grab. And they're saying it might take them uh, months if not years to actually dig through everything um, that they've discovered. And um, yeah, they're, they're focusing on a number of far right groups, including the Proud Boys, QAnon and other sort of, you know, you might think of them as the people who you're going to find on 8chan. Those are the people that they're they're um, they've been leaking information about. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm a fan of a white hat hack, but I do have to say I'm I'm a little worried at the uh, militancy of so-called progressives. I'm not sure that taking tactics which if turned on other populations would really have problems with is acceptable, even if we don't like the population it's been targeted to. So I'm, I'm not necessarily going to be cheering for the hackers in this one, especially given the number of like plain text passwords and, you know, home addresses and personal details, like what in um, corporate speak you would call PII, like uh, personally identifiable information. Like that's not stuff that should be visible online regardless. Um, and yes, it is Epic's fault for not having um, encrypted that information properly in the first place, but also it's not okay to share it now. I think um, it's really a, a very sensitive area, particularly in Melbourne at the moment where we're facing our own, um, you know, very visible demonstrations of, uh, you know, far right influence in the, the sort of riot type action that we're seeing on the streets. So mm. it's, it's quite hard to be um, objective on, on this sort of space. But yeah, I mean, but you're look, right. The principles are so important. It's, it's absolutely true. And I think like, you know, I might be a little bit unpopular in saying that I don't think um, the level of police action can be justified in these protests the last couple of days, simply because I don't think we should ever respond that way to any, any, um, you know, like civilian population, regardless of whether we agree with their politics or not. And it can be hard to hold the line on your principles when you really don't like the population or what they're doing, or you think they're, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people are really upset about the possibility of like further worsening the pandemic. And I'm very sensitive to that complaint. But um, I do think that whether the policing is done online or offline, we have to be really sensitive to whether it's appropriate, regardless of who it's being targeted at. Mm, definitely. Look, it's all a bit grim. We have been through an earthquake today, which has literally shaken us up a bit. So <laughs> I think we do need some happier news. I'm not sure if this will qualify for a lot of people, but it certainly made a small group of people very happy. MailChimp, which uh, is a company that was bootstrapped from zero by the two founders. And for those who you know, aren't that familiar with how lots of startups fund themselves and what bootstrapping might be, it, it just means that they didn't take, you know, venture capitalist funding to get themselves going. They didn't, they didn't go out and find investors elsewhere. They're just like, how can we, you know, manage to, uh, to fund this and grow? It, they founded MailChimp in 2001. And I do think MailChimp is you know, loved and hated by a lot of users because it is it is a very common, you know, mailing list management piece of software that got out there early that lots of people have, you know, tangled with and um, that has really um, added more and more features and seen what its audience wanted and, and grown, 
in a sensible kind of way. They are one of those startups, the tech startups that are based in Atlanta, which is quite interesting because it, you know, such a, a magnet for technology companies these days, as particularly as people start to do their exodus from Silicon Valley because of crazy rents and what have you. And it is, you know, a record uh, acquisition um, being acquired for twelve billion US dollars by Intuit. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting story. I'm more interested in um, the product side of these stories. You know, how did they get their user insights? You know, how did they iterate? How were they so successful? Um, what did they do right there? What can we learn from that? That I am by the money side of these stories, of course. But it, there often is a good side when a bootstrapped company um, is acquired. It often means a payday for the employees who've held on or have been really significant and have had a bit of share in the company from moment dot. And there's something kind of equitable about that, although with numbers like this, it's very hard to use that word. So I thought it was an interesting story that I'd thrown there today. Look, I know a lot of people who use MailChimp, and as you say, some people love it and some people hate it. Um, but certainly, in many ways, you might think of it as a pillar of the internet. And yeah. you know, I'm, 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 I'm a little bit cynical about the VC ecosystem as well. But I think you know, it's it's a bit mean spirited to not want people who have produced you know significant services for a very large chunk of the internet to get some profit from that. Um, you know, we can have a whole other segment on overinflation and bubbles and like, you know, unicorns. And that's probably like a, a startup segment to, to book for later. And we can oh, we should talk, definitely about, do that. talk about valuations. That's that. Yeah. Actually really fun. <laughs> you do need to pre-warn people with that sort of content. They need to have the option to tune out. <laughs> I know. Only very specific nerds are going to be interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. Hey, what's happening with Amazon at the moment, Laura? Well, yeah, um, Amazon has been working really hard to try and prevent um, this issue of fake reviews. And you may have heard of this issue floating around, like there was a, a thing called a seed fraud going where people were trying to um, get around this one type of uh, check that they were doing to ensure that you were like a verified reviewer by saying, if you have received something in the mail from the seller, then we're more confident that you've provided a real review. Um, so people were sending like very light, very cheap things in the mail. Um, but again, not really providing a real review for the real product. They were receiving something unrelated to the product they were actually reviewing. So it's it's gone on something of a purge and they have recently permanently banned 600 Chinese brands, um, sellers on their platform. Um, and that's gadget vendors like Aki, Mpow, Rav Power, Vava, Tao, Tronics, um, and many others. And um, so these. Oh, they, they, it was actually 600 companies and 2,000 brands. Oh. So those 600 companies had many more brands under their names, which I think is an, also an interesting tangent to that. Yes, that's a very yeah. good point. And particularly um, when you talk about. Chinese companies uh, like producing multiple brands, like often um, those of us buying tech from, you know, maybe not one of the three or four big suppliers that you might think of, um, you know, they all, the names kind of all blur into the same and, and they're, they're all trying to name them in a way that kind of seems legit, but you also like, you know, it's some small some small factory over in Wuhan and you know like roughly like the right direction it's coming from but you don't maybe know much more of the details um so that is that's also been a very common pattern is that they they'll spin up more and more brand names to um you know when they do get banned like kind of get past it to the next brand um but yeah look it's 
it's it's like a constant challenge of any kind of content moderation, right? Is how are you going to like actually check that the person had the real experience they're talking about and is legitimately providing their like human feedback about it? Um, and one might argue that until we get past like post-capitalism and the incentives are reset, I'm not sure that's going to happen. <laughs> but it's not going to be that Yelp problem of, you know, yes. the dodgy reviews for the takeaway down the street where you're like, but that takeaway hasn't even been open during that time. What is going on? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, whenever you have a system which uh, impacts people's income, people will work out a way to game it. It's kind of as simple as that. But so look, much I'm, wisdom from you, Laura, right I now. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that my mind today is like, did you do you follow the um, Melbourne Peregrine camera feed? Like, yes. I'm obsessed with them. And there was this wonderful video of the falcon, like, experiencing the earthquake and then at the end of it kind of jumping off the building. <laughs> just kind of, like, squawk, which I interpreted as, like, what the? <laughs> like, that's been me all day. So I'm not sure that I... You shouldn't listen to me for any kind of wisdom or advice, I promise. I think we, we need to hear from from Jo and her fabulous music selections. What do you have for us tonight before we, we hear about uh, Facebook's dark ads? Oh, look, at, at, before I get to that, as a Wellingtonian, today's earthquake really just made me, be, made me feel like I had enough. <laughs> but on a little homesick, Jo. Oh, the wrong kind of homesick. Yeah. Uh, Melbourne's own. Dr. Robbie Fordyce is a lecturer in communications and media studies in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. He joins us today to discuss findings of a recent research project into how Facebook targets advertising at user segments and um, some of the problems with this approach. Welcome back to the show, Robbie. Thanks for having me, Vanessa. It is a pleasure um, to try and get back a bit to the origin of this research. Um, this study builds on one conducted by the US news outlet ProPublica, which was designed to track political advertising on Facebook. Could you tell us a bit about that and how that might have inspired um, the further research into this? Yeah, so the ProPublica group, they um, they put together a Facebook tool that they um, that they released on uh, GitHub. Um, and the tool basically allows a user to, uh, I guess, automatically donate their ads to researchers. So one of the things that happens, obviously, when you use social media is that you'll get ads coming through your stream. Um, and what we as researchers are really interested in is sort of trying to understand how those ads get targeted to particular individuals to see if we can work out any patterns, any problems, and any issues. And so the ProPublica team put a lot of work into making a tool that kind of automates that problem uh, for us. So um, in a way, it makes it everything a lot easier for the users so that they can provide um, the ads that they see to us. They give us a little bit of demographic information. So nothing from Facebook, they enter the information themselves. And we can use that to try and work out like how they're being targeted. So people who are um, participating in this research, um, they're they're just uh, people who sort of wave their hands and volunteered. Or how did you how did you like um, get get sort of like a, a mix of people from different backgrounds and experiences to try and get a better understanding of like what this micro targeting is doing to different types of people or different types of um, identities. Yeah, so um, we we had a we were supported by um, the Australian Communications Con uh, Consumer Action Network, which is um, a group that supports research in this area. 
Um, and uh, they were able to give us some funding to help us do do recruitment. So for the first um, group, we actually had a bit of an incentive to help people, um, you know, uh, you know, basically to cover the cost of their time. And what we would do with that is um, basically we targeted specific regions around Australia to try and, uh, you know, identify people in postcodes that we thought were important. Um, because we were sort of doing this in the time leading up to the uh, the election in um, 2019, we actually um, tried to target um, uh, what we would call um, sort of marginal seats, I guess, in the election. And this meant that we, we tried to find um, groups where we thought would get interesting information. So, yeah. So what sorts of hypotheses did you have to test going into this? Um, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I guess, like, well, people are kind of familiar with dark ads as a concept. Um, uh, we can talk about that a little bit. But um, basically, we were kind of interested, like, how, how bad are dark ads? Are we seeing a lot of, like, micro-targeted political advertising that isn't really regulated? Um, are we seeing other sorts of behaviours like um, potentially vices or perhaps um, socially, like, asocial behavior going on um, and trying to work out like basically what, what do people experience when they use social media? Like, because most of us don't really look at other people's social media feeds, it takes research to actually find some of this stuff out. Um, I saw in the report this uh, example of three different ads that were targeted um, to different people based on what car they owned. So it was saying Shorten wants to tax your Holden or Shorten wants to tax your Hilux. Um, and I thought that was interesting. It reminded me of, um, you've probably seen these ads that go around that are like uh, trying to like um, scrape your name from somewhere and then put it on like a t-shirt or be like, you know, uh, people who are called Laura really like blue shirts or, you know, like, so it's, it's like, um, and, but like the thing that those ads get wrong is they kind of like trip into uncanny Valley and like make you really creeped out. What if you don't, you know, like if it's not visible to you, it's all sort of like almost a bit more subconscious that they're like targeting something very specific about your personality or your experience of the world, then um, yeah, it, it maybe is um, perhaps a, a little bit more uncomfortable because it's not so obvious to you as, as the sort of consumer of the ad that that's happening. Um, and sorry, that was a long ramble to lead into the question, <laughs> which is how, how, much, um, how much sort of awareness do you think there is that this is happening or like if if you showed someone an ad do you think you could um do you think they'd have an intuition about what's been um tailored to sort of reflect their experience or do you think that's kind of invisible yeah um okay so kind of to to add a bit of detail to what i said earlier for some of the people that we um had uh you know, recruited for our project, we actually brought them back and did interviews with them to see how they felt about the ad. So our tool would allow us to like basically take them through um, their ad stream that they'd had over the last like three weeks or whatever, and basically say to them, hey, these are ads that you got, like, do you recognize them? Do they make sense to you? And it's kind of interesting because like, obviously there's no sort of one answer. There's no one um, interpretation of it, but we do see stuff where there's a lot of stuff that's actually 
it's it's hard to tell, but I would say it's actually very highly targeted that people kind of just see as normal. Like unless they're going to actually like, as you say, put your name on it, probably people are just going to go, oh yeah, that's that's just the world I live in. Like, um, yeah, like who doesn't drive a to Toyota Hilux, right? So this ad makes sense to me. This is the world I live in. Um, so when people see ads for stuff like, um, you know, going on holiday, like they don't really make the connection necessarily between um, between the fact that they've been searching for holiday stuff and the fact that they're getting in ads. Sometimes you do. Like you hear those stories that people say about, oh yeah, I mentioned to my friend that I was going to go and buy a trampoline and now the trampoline's all through my ads. But I mean, beyond those sort of like very sort of noticeable moments where people pay a lot of attention to it, most of the time we're not really that that aware, I would say. Mm. Usually when I see surveys like that, which are, you know, do you remember seeing this ad or do you know what brands are associated with this? It's at the end of a festival or something when I get an email and it just wants to give some value back to their sponsors and sort of talk about that. Um, and usually those rates are actually quite low, those rates of recognition. Uh, how were people's rates of recognition in this space? Yeah, um, I think in some cases it's, it's interesting um, People don't necessarily recognize the material that they see. But what I found even more interesting was when people didn't really make the connection between themselves and the ad. So that tell it like, you know, often, um, you know, these people are really lovely. They want to have a chat with you first before you have a proper interview. And they kind of tell you a little bit about their life. Um, and then when you start doing the interview, you know, um, someone will say, oh, you know, my, my daughter or my friend, they're really into horses or whatever. And then you get all these ads for stables and they're like, oh, I don't understand why I'm being targeted here. But if you think about it, if you think about the way that the targeting is sort of inferred from friends or family, it starts to really fall into place. So I guess what I'm saying is not everyone's really that aware of the targeting, but it seems really obvious from the outside. Well, I apologise to everyone in my circle who's getting advertisements for finger limes. I only looked for them once, I swear, and now I'm being inundated. And I found a colleague who had the same <laughs> scenario. We were like, what What did we do? Is that you, Vanessa? I swear I've had a Bush Foods ad coming up in my Insta for finger limes not that long ago. Maybe they're just getting all of us. You know, I don't even have a garden. Um, look, I'm really interested. I was I was thinking about advertising as it stands today versus, you know, like the madman era of, um, you know, like print advertising and what is different about this style of micro-targeting and, um, you know, the kind of uh, fluidity or um, uh, intangibility of advertising because it's sort of not one thing anymore. It's, 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 it's almost like a, a distribution of ads, not like a single ad. Um, so I, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts, um, Robbie, on like what, what is different about advertising in this era and like particularly the social role of advertising and it's it's sort of like impact in forming social conscious social social conscious like ideas and norms like how how do you think um that's changing and do you yeah like sorry that was too many questions i'm gonna stop there <laughs> i mean I, I get the the general sensibility that you're you're addressing here. Um, like, I think Mad Men's like a, a great example for thinking about this, kind of because of all the nostalgia we have for it. You know, you look at um, 
you know, it, it has a lot of sort of social problems that it deals with, but just the way that that show really luxuriates in like a good ad, like the idea of having, you know, a remarkable piece of copy that's going to work and it's going to work for everyone and it's going to bring everyone in. It's going to be this mass media sort of moment. And, you know, they, they show, um, well, I guess they don't really give too much detail on most of the ads, but it's actually a really kind of captivating and nice idea. And then we get to Facebook and it's sort of like, you know, just you know, Bill Shorten wants to tax your Hilux. There's sort of like this real loss of an art form there, I kind of feel like when you look at Facebook advertising. But, you know, with um, not not to sort of wax lyrical about the, um, you know, this really like highly capitalist sort of art form, I guess the thing that sort of um, stands out to me is some of the arguments that have come out of people um, such as um, Sam, uh, Sam Kinemoth and um, Nick Kara up at QUT, for instance. These folk, um, also UQ, UQ, I think, um, these folk have sort of made a point about how actually a lot of the changes that we've seen in other sort of spaces like the entertainment industry uh, and, you know, production design and all this, these sort of areas where the focus has shifted from, you know, uh, art and cura curatorial practices into the technology, like we're seeing that same thing happen with advertising. It's all about changing the tech, about, um, you know, micro-targeting, programmatic advertising, all that sort of stuff is really taking over the idea of like a, a quality piece of advertising. I, I think um, there are quite a few questions there, but I think that mm. covers them. We've angsted a little bit in the show, in the news, around um, the effect of the internet on democracy mm -hmm. and uh, the, some of the, the problematic effects. And we often talk about um, having a diversity of news sources being really a constructive thing, but then also um, people's access to to news and access to you know common news to be able to weigh up and create a, a true picture of the society in which they live being mm. a really important thing. Then if we start to think about advertising as another source of information or misinformation in in their in their world, you know, how do you know media theorists, I guess, um, you know, how do you think about the effect that's having on our construction of the society in which we live? Mm. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I might put the question of uh, misinformation itself to the side for just the moment. But, you know, if, if you think about what it's like um, in the sort of mass media era, right, when we're talking about the madman stuff, it's on billboards, it's in the newspaper, it's very visible to everyone. Um you know, you walk down the street with a friend uh, next to you, if there's a billboard there, you both see the same thing. You, you have a common idea of what the environment that you're in is, is like. But if you do the same thing where you walk down the street next to someone scrolling through your, through your um, Facebook feed, for instance, and I, I want to make clear, like Facebook is just one of the problems here, but uh, it's kind of a bit easier for us to study. Um, if you're next to someone else, you're scrolling through your feed, you're going to be getting different content. If you're going to get the same ads consistently for, like, you know, own separate ads consistently, for instance, I, for some reason, get targeted with a huge array of gambling ads. I have absolutely no interest in it. But nonetheless, like, so I get the sort of sensibility that my world is sort of like, you know, I'm trying to carve out a space in a world of gambling. And people next to me, they'll be trying to do the same thing. We'll be developing sort of different ideas about the society that we live in 
different expectations. As the targeting, you know, starts to shape our expectations of what other people see and what kind of world we live in, I think that sort of generates a degree of separation between us and the world that other people have. I think it maybe even be an interesting experiment for for people at home to think about, you know, swap your phone with your your partner or a family member and just see, you know, what are their ads like? What's their experience of Facebook like? Mm-hmm. That's really valid. Um, it makes me think too that. Um, when advertising, you know, maybe is successful, it can become something that people talk about. And particularly if it uses humour, you know, it can go viral a little bit. Now, that recently happened to an eBay commercial where there's people in an office sharing things and people have been quoting those lines at me in the office and um, it's been amusing. But what also happened to me is that people quoted lines to me from it and someone said, oh, they hadn't heard it. What's that? And, and they mistakenly attributed it to an Amazon commercial. And mm. I just thought that's fascinating. You know, they're such similar businesses that there's been a failure to differentiate here. But also what does it say about our perception of, okay, this is what online sales feels like, mm. you know. Mm. And um, I'm not sure I have a question there, but I, I, do, I do wonder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I might riff off that, Vanessa, Mm, um, mm. because I think maybe, you know, we we often worry about um, people with minority identities um, or, you know, at the intersection of minority identities sort of getting the short end of the stick when it comes to algorithmic recommendation systems. Um, And and so perhaps um, there's a question, which is, did you observe, uh, you know, what you might think of as like punitive advertising practices? targeted at people like at, you know, lower socioeconomic areas of the world or people who are who are um, otherwise like, you know, perhaps more vulnerable to that style of advertising? Um, that's that's a difficult question. I would say we probably don't actually have um, enough data or at, at scale to be able to make like really clear claims about that stuff. But I mean, mm-hmm. We we did see stuff on on gambling, on alcohol consumption, and stuff like that that I would say is probably of of interest to people. Certainly, you know, like if you're um, if you're advertising alcohol um, uh, to someone who's an alcoholic, for instance, like I think that's a pretty problematic practice to engage in. Um, beyond that, like we didn't we didn't have enough um, scale or systematic um, capacity to assess it, I would say, to, to make um, really big claims about prejudicial targeting. But it is worth noting that um, Facebook is actually changing its targeting program uh, going forward, or at least that seems to be what the rumors are, where it's going to allow people to um, not just create sort of um, positive, inclusive um, uh, advertising categories, but also define exclusion categories as well, which is, you know, I, I think given the way that Facebook has been um, abused around that in the past, it's worth considering how that would be used to exclude potentially minorities and other individuals as well. So considering so much of this advertising almost happens um, without us noticing until we kind of do because we're like, I think I've seen that a hundred times. Is there anything that you learnt that you could let users know to sort of have them be more informed about this? Um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a great question, Vanessa. Like, the reality is we don't really have the capacity to solve this at an individual level. Like, Facebook is a gigantic machine. 
we're all just like one person. Maybe maybe if you're a parent, you have a bit more control over another couple of individuals, but maybe just a little. Um, the reality is is that um, Facebook works extremely hard to avoid any uh, sort of regulation. Um, they're releasing new platforms that target kids, for instance, at the moment. We're, we're looking at a platform that's trying to increase its reach to people who don't necessarily have the skills or literacy to do anything about it. And in my mind, um, speaking, I guess, as a as an individual researcher, I think that regulation is like really, really necessary. I also think it's probably not going to happen until like we see some pretty big crises unfold. Well, that was going to be the next question. Um, you know, with the Wall Street Journal's um, ongoing release, you know, incremental sort of spoon feeding us of this mm. incredible bunch of, um, you know, leaked uh, reports from researchers inside Facebook where they're talking about the known harms and the known failure to mitigate some of those harms, um, which would hurt profit and growth, uh, as Tony Biggs would say. Um, we're also seeing movements from uh, Biden's administration with some serious appointments to various regulatory bodies, including the Federal Trade Commission. How hopeful are you that we're going to see action soon? You sounded not that hopeful a moment ago, but, you know, does this sway you at all, you know, just remembering... Mm -hmm. I mean, like part of the part of the stuff that's coming out in those reports is stuff that basically says that Facebook allows privileged access to um, data and uh, under like allows um, specific individuals to produce content that's not regulated effectively. And this was directed at Trump. This, I assume, like, you know, Barack Obama's uh, campaign used Facebook data and targeting like Biden isn't that far distant from from the Obama um, administration. Um, I don't I don't see any meaningful change coming through at the moment. Um, sorry to be a bit of a Debbie Downer, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's no, no, we want the realism. This is fine. Yeah, I, I, like, I think when you look at the history of most like regulatory wins, like they're not they're not given freely, you know, with lunch. They came after hard work fought campaigns and activism from scientists and citizens. You know, like you look at the history of the seatbelt and that's exactly that. It's 30 years of pain. And then finally we get some serious movement. Um, so I think perhaps the, the pragmatism is useful for us to like, you know, prepare ourselves for what's coming. Definitely. At, at, a, at a minimum, you could see about deleting Facebook and if not, um, maybe get in touch with us in a few months when we've got our next research project coming up. I love it. You've given us a range of options that we can live with. Robbie, thank you so much. For more research from Monash University's, sorry, excuse me, for more research from Monash University's School of Media, Film and Journalism, their Twitter account is um, MFJ Monash. Do check it out. That way you can keep in touch with opportunities to be part of research like this in the future. Always a pleasure and very informative speaking with you. Dr. Robbie Bordice, thanks so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So, Vanessa, I was thinking maybe we could chat a little bit more about Facebook since there's been a few more things happening with them in the news the past couple of days and weeks. Um I know that you've touched on this for Breakfasters, but there's been a um, series of 
uh, uh, reports coming out from the um, uh, WSJ, which stands for Washington Journal, I had to think that acronym through. <laughs> um, and they've been revealing information about internally conducted research at Facebook, which ex shows that they um, have been much more aware of some of these issues we keep talking about than they've been publicly willing to let on. Um, I think one of the key key um, lines in the piece was, oh my God, they put that down on paper. Like I remember <laughs> listening to the podcast on the weekend and thinking, wow, yep, that's right. The um, information like, uh, um, you know, like, uh, teen girls and suicidal thoughts, that sort of thing. Like the, 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 these known issues that they're talking about in terms of Instagram's impact on teenage um, teenagers and their mental health. Um, and also this information that's coming out about this whitelist, which is uh, a um, sort of exemption from community policies and content moderation that was being applied to very high profile and famous users. Um, and essentially how big people could get away with saying whatever they wanted on the platform because they found moderating them was too difficult. Yeah, that was very shocking. Um, also shocking was the human trafficking aspect uh, where Facebook really had visibility both between the people buying ads, which were attracting people to be um, to take up positions that weren't uh, correctly advertised. So sometimes they were um, advertising jobs where people would then be trafficked into, you know, sex work. Other times it wasn't quite so insidious but still terrible. You know, jobs with, you know, conditions not actually um, going to be upheld that then turned into forced labour, sort of made work, um, sometimes in the Gulf, you know, doing, uh, you know, 18-hour days in crazy temperatures and, you know, not being fed very much and not having your passport and all those sorts of conditions that you see in modern slavery cases. And the fact that they could see both the advertisers and the people being recruited and the messages between the two and all these sorts of things, you know, weren't blocking the advertisements to begin with. Um, and then sometimes, you know, people would reach out for help then on the Facebook platform, incredible stories where really Facebook could see all of those things happening and at no point stepped in and solved the problem um, until Apple raised their hands and said, we're, we're going to kick you out of the App Store. Um, Sorry, Joe, did you have something to say to that? I was actually... Oh, no, you're just testifying. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. And then, of uh, course, we've got the, the algorithm enhancing outrage, you know, um, making more visible the, the more extreme views put out there and uh, radicalising, I guess, the sort of news and the conversations that are accessible to us and visible to us. Yeah, that's it's one of the really interesting things about the idea of online speech is that we're, you know, removing the nuance and focusing on the most extreme interpretations. Um, there's a concept... Yeah, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, apparently coming up next, they'll be releasing more information about anti-vaccine activists really um, getting a stranglehold on the platform too. Yeah, right. So, mm. For the next leak from um, WSJ. Yes, that's right, as they continue yeah, to right. release more. Yeah, Yeah, that that should be interesting to see um, how, how they've traced that that that. Um, that etymology, <laughs> the etymology <laughs> of that of, of those ideas. 
Um, Sure. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, there's a there's a concept I've been thinking a lot about, which is like the charitable interpretation of speech, which is, you know, when you're working in remote teams and you're constantly chatting on Slack or, you know, like text platforms, um, you know, it can be easy to like, you know, see something and be like, oh, that's they don't like me or they, they didn't agree with me. Um, but you have to you have to like kind of do this deliberate thing of thinking, well, you know, what were they thinking? And maybe is there a charitable interpretation of what they're saying? Um, and I, I was thinking like, the Facebook algorithm and like recommendation algorithms are kind of the opposite because they want to like take the most extreme interpretation of any statement because that's what generates, you know, action, activity, engagement wow. on the platform. Yeah. So I just blow your mind, Vanessa. <laughs> You're looking well, at me like, you've nailed it. And uh, I'd never heard it expressed like a charitable interpretation before, but um, that's a beautiful expression for it. Uh, just, you know. Well, like, wanting kindness in your online communities. Exactly. And I think if we think about the goals that we are trying to like bake into these platforms, which is, you know, treating people more humanely and having having better human connections and, you know, like, you know, tingling in the gray and, and creating, <laughs> you know, these real, you know, this 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 extra detail and granularity and nuance, like we, we want to be able to um, like get the feel for what's behind the words. And we do have to think about, I mean, we think about most human interaction relies on, you know, we look at people's faces for cues and we read their lips and there's so much more than just the words that we hear. And mm. we've stripped all that away in these platforms. So we have mm. to think about ways we can start to put these cues back in. And I think that's partially why things like emoji are so popular because they're, they're ways to try and like, you know, be like, oh, it's a cheeky wink. It's not like a nasty thumbs down kind of thing. So you, you kind of like get the nuance. You get a little bit more detail about what's going on. I thought it was very funny that um, having recently started using Microsoft Teams, that one of the emojis that they've enabled on their work chat, and you've only got really five emojis to choose from for default, uh, is a heart which I would have thought was a little over the top for a work scenario, <laughs> but because it's the only thing, you like, you don't have a, a happy face to choose. You can choose laughing, but that's quite different to just smiling at someone. Um, so it's sort of like heart or nothing. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm going full heart. Like we've got to use something happy. Full, Everything full can't love. be shock emoji. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, shock emoji is one of them. One of five. You put shock there when wow. you've only got five emojis. I know in a work context, oh. and I stress that this is very odd behavior. I would be really lost without my like <laughs> cat waiting for food emojis. <laughs> yes, I have a couple I, I, favorites that I call to very frequently, but yeah, like they express yeah. very clear experiences. Um, there's also one other thing to mention with Facebook, which is that um, there's just been uh, like. A, a fairly big lawsuit or even set of lawsuits that's been announced. Um, and there's a, a thread by a reporter, Jason Clint on, um, who on Twitter, who's been talking about this, this set of um, lawsuits that's coming out now. Um, and it's focusing on antitrust law and it's focusing on compliance and sec law. So it's, it's not maybe like terribly sexy law, but it is very interesting. And it's, um, it's it's alleging a lot of stuff, um, and particularly it's it's got some very interesting fingers to point at um, money that has been paid to protect Zuckerberg because he was able to control the board to prevent himself from being personally named in previous suits. So that's a very interesting um, sort of set of set of like 
events yeah yeah it's been set rolling because he didn't want to be seen as like personally responsible um so the the company has like done quite a lot to try and prevent that from happening but has then like kicked off this like broader issue of what is their corporate responsibility and like what what do they need to front up to essentially um and look you know i don't think this is going to turn into a breakup facebook lawsuit but it could certainly sting them and that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on so um it's it's if you're interested in this kind of thing there's a very long thread with a whole bunch of the um the legal pages like screenshotted and highlighted so um it's it's certainly worth a look at and it's um it's up on Twitter if you're if you're interested in that sort of thing. But look, it's going back to things as late as like 2008, 2012. Um, and certainly we know the law moves slowly when it comes to responding to sort of corporate misdeeds and bad behavior. So hopefully, hopefully this will um this will like tie tie up some loose ends and get us like some action against Facebook. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. means a lot. Laura, one event to leave us with? Yes, so there's an event coming up on the Wheeler Centre Monday, October 11th, um, 6.30 7.30, called Friends Debate Break the Internet. And, of course, we're into weird, dumb shit talking about internet memes. Um, hosted by Lou Wall. Do check it out at wheelercenter.com. Lovely. Hey, a big thank you to our guest this evening, Dr. Robbie Fordyce from Monash University. Thanks to my fellow hosts, Joe and Laura, for keeping me company on Earthquake Day and to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.